Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. Located in the heart of Concord, New Hampshire, Centerpoint is all about living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The message today is a part of that journey, and we are glad to have you join us. That's some good sauntering music, isn't it? Saunter they do, at high, sauntering at high speed. There they go. Hey, I want to welcome you here. If uh, you're new here and we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Matt, and uh, I serve here on staff. I'm one of the pastors and would love to get to know you a little bit and serve you however I can do that. If you're checking in online, love that you're doing that also. Would love to get a chance to connect with you. Uh, shoot me an email or stop in sometime. Would love to, to meet you as you're watching online. All right, I know sometimes my mother-in-law checks in online, and today is her birthday, so I just want to say happy birthday, mother-in-law. Will everybody say, happy birthday, Matt's mother-in-law. There you go. And she's many miles away, so she can't get me back. All right. Uh, as a matter of fact, just this last week, Heidi, my wife, spent some time with her folks. They live in Michigan. And... Um, yeah, getting there was a little bit of an adventure. Some of you have had adventures like this, no doubt. Uh, she had everything planned out perfectly on paper, but then the airline decided to make things a little bit more spicy uh, the morning of. And so her original flight out of Boston got delayed by a little over an hour, which means she had about six minutes to make her connection at the layover. Have you ever had a six-minute layover? That's interesting. So trying to manage all these problems and, and, and running through the airport and trying to get stuff figured out in the Boston side and then getting to where she was in Detroit and like, oh, it was this whole thing. She almost made it to her gate, but not ready, but not, but not quite there. Oh, the plane had just backed out. Oh, so now it's this whole problem. And what are we going to do? And the next plane wasn't going to leave till like 9 p.m., which is just like she'd have been at the airport for like eight hours. So this just isn't okay, and, and she's keeping me apprised of this. One of the things that was floating through my mind is, uh, I know the CEO of the airline. Like, I don't know him well, uh, but I know who he is. Uh, he and his wife and family were a part of a church that I had served previously to here. So I know this guy. Um, he wouldn't know who I am from anybody in the crowd, but I know who he is. Uh, and so I thought, gosh, I'm, I, should, I should like... DM Ed and get him to fix this thing. Like, there's a problem. Certainly the CEO ought to be able to make this better than this. Have you ever thought that as you were flying? At least the CEO ought to be able to know about this thing. Well, um, no, that isn't actually what I did. But I was stuck in this, somebody's got to make this right. I've got to help my wife, and she's working hard to make this right. She ended up being able to get there in good time, and it didn't, she didn't have to wait till late, so she got to be with her family by mid-afternoon. She ended up renting the car and driving the rest of the way. So she made it happen. But there was no help to be had. She just had to figure this thing out in this huge system that seemed pretty overwhelming. I share that story uh, because uh, as I was experiencing that whole dynamic myself, it occurred to me, this is the way a lot of us feel about God. Like we're stuck in this system that's bigger than we are, and sometimes the system works and it seems to be good on paper, but then there's these last minute surprises, we'll call them, that just upset everything. And we know the CEO 
But there's kind of this sense like, he doesn't pay that much attention to me. Um, but he's out there somewhere. There's the CEO who's supposed to take care of things. And if he was really in charge, if he was really good, then everything would be okay. And somebody would make this right. And so can we appeal even through Twitter DMs to the CEO of the universe to make things okay? Right? So we, we wrestle with the condition of our world. And we all experience the brokenness of the world in different ways, don't we? Sometimes we uh, experience it in broken health. Sometimes Sometimes we experience it in broken relationships. We, uh, we read the news feeds and we see what seems to be evil people prospering, and that just doesn't seem right. It offends this sense of rightness within us, that the world isn't right. And this churning that we have is somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to make the world right. And then we might come across God. Somebody shares about God with us. Maybe we, maybe we grew up in the church, but we turn our face towards God and we say, God, you're the one in charge here. You're the one who's supposed to make it right. God, if you were good, this wouldn't be so bad. God, if you were loving, good people wouldn't suffer. God, if you were um, powerful, you would put a stop to the nonsense of our world. And so we turn our face towards God even an accusation as we ask him questions. God, who are you and what in the world are you doing? The world is a mess if you haven't noticed. Are you gonna do something about it? The world's broke, God. Are you gonna make it right? And sometimes we hear this someday out there, but it doesn't seem to satisfy. And so we continue to have this longing in our heart and it draws up questions for us about who God is. And so it begs the question for us, God, when are you going to make it right? God, when are you going to do something about the mess that we're in? And as we ask these questions, I want us to listen in this morning. There's a, a talk, a message, a sermon that the Apostle Peter gives in Acts chapter 2. We got the front end of that uh, last week, and we're going to continue on in it here today. Because God's answer is resounding in these spirit-empowered words of the Apostle Peter. Now you might remember Jesus had ascended into heaven. The uh, disciples were waiting. His followers were waiting. He said they would get a sign uh, when it was time to, to go, when it was time for God's thing to be taking off. And that sign would be they would receive the Holy Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And on that day, they began to speak in languages that weren't their own, but other people could understand them. And so it was drawing this crowd some in the crowd said they're just drunk. Uh, others just asked, what does this mean? And so this is the context where Peter gets up and preaches in Acts chapter 2. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to, to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 22. Like I said, we looked at the first part of this. Peter drew from the prophet Joel to explain what they were seeing, what was going on that day and the Holy Spirit coming and being poured out on all people. And then he addresses the crowd in verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. Fellow Israelites, Peter continues, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, King David of Israel's history, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. We're continuing on. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. This is a great place, like circle that, underline that. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Circle that whole thing right there. This is key. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and listen to this, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, Lord our God will call. Like, that's us. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I know we read a lot here and there's a lot that's being unpacked here. But at the heart of what Peter's message is proclaiming is that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. This is the proclamation of good news that Peter, inspired by the Spirit, is giving to all the crowd that has been drawn in. Jesus, this Jesus that you're familiar with, he says, you know him. You saw his miracles, all those kinds of things. This Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And through his rule and reign, God's renewal of all creation has begun. This is God's response to the ache of the human heart that says the world is broken. God, why won't you do something? And through Jesus, God is saying a resounding, I am the new thing has begun it is taking place in you and among you and so peter again fueled by the holy spirit spirit proclaims this beautiful powerful transformational good news for at its very essence 
The good news is, the gospel is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his enthronement is good news for a broken world. For through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the new thing has begun. And yes, there is a day Upon his return, remember the angels, as Jesus ascended, the angels said to those who were left looking into the sky, they said, this one that you see left you, he's going to return just like you saw him leave. So there will be a day upon Jesus' return when the renewal project will be fulfilled and completed. But what we get to receive today is this incredible transformational good news that the project has begun. And through the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of his resurrection, we are welcomed into this renewal project of God. And so Paul lays out for this crowd the story of Jesus and proclaiming it as good news in this day. He says this Jesus, this one that you're familiar with, they were gathered there in Jerusalem. Now remember, this isn't the end of the proclamation of good news, but it's starting in Jerusalem. Jesus said, when the spirit comes on you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so we're starting here. This is the story of Acts and we're going to see it spread to the rest of the known world throughout the rest of this this, uh, this writing that Luke has given us that we call Acts. We're seeing his work spread, but it begins here. And so these people are gathered in Jerusalem and they're listening and they're wondering and they ask the question, what does it mean? The stuff that we're seeing, the stuff that we're hearing, what does it mean? And Peter explains its meaning to them. And so he goes back and he anchors it in the life, death, and resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. Jesus' life his miracles, the things that he did were accredited, were, were God's accrediting him through these miracles so that all heaven and earth would see this Jesus is the one who is anointed by God. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. Sometimes the word, same word is translated Christ. Um, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his, it's his vocation, uh, Messiah, the anointed one. And so God accredited him as the anointed one through these miracles. And so when we see Jesus healing people, that's what through uh, the prophets and through generations before was told would happen when the kingdom of God arrived. When the kingdom of God arrives, you're going to see it as it happens. And what will you see? You will see the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk again. And the poor are blessed. The, the visible sign of the kingdom, as recorded by the prophets, is what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't do his healings just because they were fun to do, though, though it was pretty cool. And he was really creative in how they did them. In my own personal reading this last week, I was reading some healings where he approaches the blind man. And he spits in mud, puts the mud on his eyes, and tells him to go wash. Like, that, that's a little awkward, uh, but, but there he goes, like he's healing. There's meaning in all of his healings and he makes the lame man get up, pick up his mat and walk and he dances and uh, deaf and mute hear and speak. Like we're seeing these healings and then we see Jesus uh, heal people from demonic oppression. When the kingdom of God arrives, it comes as light and it pushes out the darkness. 
So these healings and the power of Jesus on displaying his life is the evidence that, that he is God's anointed one. Because people were asking, is, is he the one? Even John the Baptist asked, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Jesus' response, when asked by John's disciples if he was the one, Jesus' response was, what do you see? Right, Because the kingdom is going to come with evidence. God affirmed Jesus as anointed one through his life. Now we look at Jesus' death. Jesus' death breaks the power of sin and death that has its hold on mankind. Death has got humanity in its grip. And so Jesus walked through the doorway of death on purpose. He didn't stumble in. He didn't like walk in the room like, oh, my bad, sorry, try to back out. Like Jesus went there on purpose. And we see this as uh, Peter is explaining this. God's plan and foreknowledge included the death of Christ. And these Israelites, the Jews, that's who Peter is talking to in this particular sermon. He's saying, you did this. You did it in cooperation with lawless people, with those who don't have the law. That's what that word translated wicked uh, means. It's those who don't have the law. Sometimes we'll say Gentiles, but um, our translators are putting a, a, a sharper edge on that for us. You cooperated with wicked men to accomplish this vile offense against the very Son of God, the one who is pure and perfect against him, you raised your hand and he died. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't uh, secondary. This was God's plan. This was God's plan for opening the door for any who believe to come in and experience the kingdom of God, to walk in newness of life. For in his death, he broke the bondage of sin and death and sin and death hold all mankind in bondage it has been true then and it is true now for all of us all of humanity we're born into systems and ways of thinking and operating that stand in opposition to God and so sometimes our rebellion against God looks like shaking our fist at him and yelling at him and cursing at him overtly and other times our rebellion against God just looks like people doing life the best that they can but all of us were born into systems that stand in opposition to the creator of the universe all of us were born into systems that say, I'm in charge. I'm the master of my own fate. I have my own destiny in my hands. And in doing so, we reject the creator who gave us life. And so we stand in opposition to him, held captive by sin and death. But through his death, the plan of God, executed in partnership with wicked men, was God's intention to break the chains of sin and death. But he didn't leave him there. He goes on. Peter goes on. God raised him from the dust. This one that you killed, this one that you destroyed, was raised to life by God. God raised him to life. 
And he goes back, because again, we're talking to Israelites here, goes back into Israel's history to King David. He remembers the promise that God had made that he would always have a descendant on his throne. Goes back to some of the writings of David that he records for us in Psalms and the way that David talks looks forward to this one who would sit on the throne eternally, who would not taste death, whose body would not decay. And so we see that in Jesus, that before his body could even begin to decay, he was raised to life. He was dead, and now he is alive. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the centrality of the resurrection to Christian belief, that he was dead, and now he's alive. It wasn't a figment of their imagination. It wasn't a grave robber's best ploy that's been kept secret for 2,000 years. It wasn't a, a vision or a ghost. It was resurrection. It was bodily resurrection to new life. David spoke of it in anticipation. And what does Peter say? And today we are witnesses of this thing. And so we talk about what our calling is as his people. It is to be a resurrection people. People who bear witness to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Peter even alludes to the ascension. Like this is what has just happened in most recent days. Jesus was taken up. And because he was taken up, he sits at the right hand of the Father and was given the spirit that he poured out on his people, on all people who believe. This is the story that encompasses this good news. What is is the spirit empowering witness of? The good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And today, you and I are invited into this new life, and you and I also are empowered by his spirit as witnesses of this good news. And so Paul lays out for us what this good news is, what this thing is that we are witnesses of. And then as the message continues, it highlights some of the implications of this. He's certainly not asking the question, if, he's saying because, because this is true, Here are the implications. Because the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are true, Here are the implications of these things. Look at verse 33. I'm not going to read the whole section again, but look at verse uh, 33. One of the first implications of this, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Like I was just saying, the implication of his ascension is that he now sits at the right hand of God. God Jesus has been elevated to the place of authority. David even references where all of earth is made his footstool. That's the language of enthronement and authority, that Jesus actually has authority over all creation. That part is already in play. That is not merely a someday thing. It is a today thing. Jesus is enthroned. And the implication of that enthronement is that he exercises a rule and reign over all of creation. Another implication of this, verse 36. Verse 36. Therefore... 
let all Israel be assured of this. That's who he's talking to. Again, the message we know already is beyond Israel, but right now he's, he's talking to Israel. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, right? He's, he's poking the chest yet again, getting their attention. This one whom you have crucified, he has made him both Lord and Messiah. Or your translation might be both Lord and Christ. Again, Messiah means Christ. So the implication of this, as Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And those are incredibly important phrases. Let's look at Messiah first. To be Messiah means that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's promise from God. God made covenant promises to Israel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of promise to Israel. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the one on whom God's favor rests. And through him, blessing would come to Israel and through Israel to the rest of the world. This is what it means for him to be Messiah. And so sometimes in our, in our Christian life, we want to take the New Testament and just say, hey, we're good. We're New Testament people. And the rest of this stuff is just context. It's just like whatever. We, there, there have even been some pastors that have talked about disconnecting the Old and New Testaments for our own good. And I would say that that's an absolute catastrophe because in order for us to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do and our place in it, we need to see God's design since the beginning unfolding in and through the people that he called and made into the nation of Israel. And we see their story, and through their story, one, we see our own, because it's a story that frankly is quite discouraging when we look at it. Like, we want to be the hero of the story. We want Israel to be the hero of the story. But over and over, it's a colossal failure. And the fact of the matter is, the same is true for us. We make the best attempt at resolve God, we're going to do it right this time, I promise, and wholeheartedly come. And yet failure meets us before we even leave the driveway. What do we do with this? What does God do with this? We see in Israel's continual failure and the ups and downs and undulations of the story of the Hebrew scriptures, we see God's faithfulness. We see God's tender mercy. We see God's long-suffering love at play. And we see thread through this whole thing that God is making a promise to send a Messiah, to send an anointed one who will rule and reign over all creation. And in his presence, the renewal of all things will begin and ultimately be culminated. This is what it means to be Messiah. And so we cannot simply discard Messiah Christ as something peripheral. It's core to who Jesus is revealed to be. And it means something not only to Israel, though clearly Peter is making sure that it means something to Israel. This Messiah that you've been waiting for, you killed him. You killed him. But God has raised him. And he sits enthroned today. So Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who uh, is revealing God's loving mercy to all of creation as he renews all things through his good, beautiful, loving, just, holy rule and reign, Messiah. So God has made this one Messiah. He has also made him Lord. 
Lord is a little bit more of a, a Greek word, if you will. It's a little bit less of a Jewish word, but it still means something even to Israel, this Lord. But what it does is it universalizes his rule and reign. If Peter had said, God made this one whom you crucified, Messiah, that would be meaningful for Israel. The one who rules and reigns over Israel has come, we killed him, God raised him, and now he's for us and drawing us. But he isn't king only of Israel. As he sits enthroned, centered in Israel, he rules over all of creation. And so this language of Lord is about the universal rule and reign of Israel's Messiah. Those two things are woven together. And this is powerful, transformational good news for us. That if this is true, everything changes. Or as Peter said, because this is true, everything changes. And so there are these implications for Jesus. The spirit sending Jesus crucified and raised is both Lord and Messiah. He rules and reigns. Jesus is the king of Israel and therefore he is the Lord of all creation. And in proclaiming this good news, we are also proclaiming God's renewal of all things has begun. The renewal has begun. And it has begun through the holy, just, powerful, good, loving, merciful rule and reign of Jesus the King. But it's not only good news for Jesus, it's good news for all of creation. And so we get drawn into this thing. We get drawn into this thing. Look at verse... Um, 38, the people ask, this is incredible. This is incredible news. What must we do? How do we respond to this? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, God's salvation, God's renewal is salvation. And by his grace and mercy, he draws people into his salvation. He is making for himself a new people, a new creation people, a resurrection people. And this salvation has deep and powerful implications. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, God's restoration and renewal of all things has begun. And he is laying claim to all of creation as he sits on the throne of heaven. And he's exercising reign and rule even this day. And we have a different perspective of time than he does, do we not? And yet here he rules and reigns. And so as our hearts beg and ache, God, what are you doing? He's saying, I'm doing it and I'm showing you. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the new thing has begun. And you are invited into it. You can join it. You can be a part of this salvation. This salvation is yours. And so what is the gift of this salvation? It is the forgiveness of sins. 
No matter what it has looked like for you to stand in opposition to God through Jesus, through him and him alone, there is the forgiveness of sins. We don't have to just promise to do our best and God, I'm sorry, and and I'm going to try really hard this time. It is his grace, it is his mercy, it is his long-suffering love that draws us into this salvation where we can experience the forgiveness of sins. Whatever the rebellion against God has looked like, through Jesus and those who would come to him, we would receive this gift of salvation that includes the forgiveness of sins. This salvation also includes new life. It doesn't stop at the forgiveness of sins. The gifts keep coming. And what is this gift? It is this gift of new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is what we saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. That God has poured out the gift of his spirit. What is the role of this spirit? To draw us into himself and to draw us into new life. For without the spirit's empowerment, we cannot live new life in Christ. The best that we got is living in the flesh the way the world has trained us, and we continue to participate in the systems and structures that that serve rebellion against God. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are drawn into new life. And so the salvation of God is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit that empowers this new life. This, my friends, is incredibly good news. There is no better news in all the universe for anybody in mankind. And so what do we do with this? Listen to Peter's response. Repent and be baptized. This is the response. Now, in one sense, it ought to be like, that's all. Repent and be baptized. But it seems like there should be more. No, there's nothing you can do to earn the gift of salvation, forgiveness, and life. Repent and be baptized. And so sometimes we get a little turned around on repentance and what that means. I get that. And so we look at what repentance is. Sometimes we've whittled repentance down to to mean be really, really sorry for the bad stuff that you did. Like squawk out some tears if you can. But be really, really sorry. Like really, really mean it. Now, like that's, that could be part of it, right? And when we consider our sin in light of his holiness, it, it wrecks us. Absolutely true. But repentance is about turning and and this whole new life. Like we've been trained in the systems and structures of this world that live in rebellion against God. And so to repent is to reject these things and to take on this new thing. To walk in this new thing. So repent means, oh, I was trucking down this road and now I'm heading here. Repent and be baptized, he says. This baptism is a part of repentance, for baptism is uh, a sign. It, it's, it plunges us into the death and resurrection of Jesus. For in him we are rescued from the bondage of sin and slavery. Like going down into the waters of baptism, it makes our minds draw back to God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. Remember as he rescued them, some of you who are familiar with the story, rescued them, they came to uh, the Red Sea And there was no way to cross, but yet God parted the waters and they walked through the waters to the other side and were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And so baptism gives us this imagery that draws us into the rescue and salvation of God through the waters. 
It's an embodied identification with Jesus. Sometimes we want to make our, our faith just personal and private. Like nobody needs to know. But as we change our allegiance, because that's what baptism is. Baptism is a change of allegiance. It says, I am death to the old self and I am new to the new self, alive in Christ. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. This is what it is to experience this identification with Jesus. And a baptism is a public change of allegiance to Jesus and his rule and reign. We have been in allegiance to the systems and structures of this world. And now through Christ, we are changing our allegiance through repentance and baptism. Saying, I am now putting, giving my allegiance to King Jesus. And this is where new life resides for those who believe. There was a young couple that I had the chance to meet in India. And uh, this was a number of years ago. I haven't had any contact with them since. But they lived in eastern India. It was a very poor area in the, the, near the city of Bihar. And I remember sitting in their little home, maybe twice as big as this carpet was. So it was very small. It was big enough for a, um, a double bed and a little bit of storage around and under. And uh, we sat in their home and I got to meet them, this beautiful young couple. And they shared their story. They were living in this particular village and nobody there had heard of Jesus, but somebody had come from a neighboring village and they began to talk about Jesus. And the more that this person talked about Jesus from this other village, the more they awakened. Something in them awakened and stirred. And he talked about a new life that they desired and wanted. So they gave their lives to Jesus. And they understood what baptism meant. Shortly after their decision to follow Jesus, they were in the river Ganges, one you're probably somewhat familiar with, at least by reputation. And they were to be baptized in this river, but they didn't show up alone. For they had emptied their house of all the idols. See, as I looked around, just even their simple little home, there were all these little cutouts in the walls where the idols had previously been kept to the gods that they and their family had worshipped and served. But on the day of their baptism, they packed up all their idols and put them in a burlap bag and carried them with them into baptism. And as they walked out into the river, they flung the idols in this bag tied into the middle of this river and they watched it sink. And then they too were baptized in the name of Jesus. And as I heard that story, I was so inspired because that is a beautiful picture of this change of allegiance. Everything in their lives had been trained in the worship and service of these idols. But now their allegiance had changed to Jesus and they would serve him and follow him no matter how hard it was. And as the first ones in their village to follow Jesus, it was hard. They were cut out of economics. Their family abandoned them. But they were steadfast in their even, I call it simple, simple young faith. But it was so transformationally powerful. And it might be easy for you and I to look at that, that story, hear that story, and we can imagine the idols that were residing in the pockets and the walls, and we think, gosh, that seems a little bit silly that you would bow down to idols made of wood and iron. They didn't have gold. But we do the same thing. We have pockets in our walls, the walls of our home, littered with the idols that we worship. And it doesn't look like carved images it can look a whole lot of different ways. And the invitation to this new life to repent and be baptized is an invitation to new life through absolutely abandoning the idolatry that comes natural to us. The idolatry that we were handed 
by our families that we were handed by the world in which we live and to turn in humble repentance to allegiance in Jesus. This is the invitation of life. And so here is Peter proclaiming by the power of the Holy Spirit the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And because this is true, everything is changed. What must we do? What must we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is what is offered to us from Jesus who is both Lord and Messiah. Let me pray. Jesus, Lord, Messiah, we worship you. We honor you. We confess our rebellion against you. We have sinned. And our sin has made us unworthy. And yet you have poured out your love on us through Christ that we might live and know life, life now and life forever. God, we turn in repentance and we proclaim our allegiance to you. Forgive us. Fill us with your spirit that we might know your life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a moment and we're going to remember this good news in a very tangible way. Call it communion. Call it the Lord's Supper. Call it Eucharist and different traditions. We can call it different things, but it's the invitation of God to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And as offensive as that sounds, it did when he first said it too. That was the day when he said those words that a bunch of people walked away from him and said, it's just too much. But to take him into ourselves, this is what we do. You don't need to be a member of Centerpoint Church to come to the Lord's table with us. Scripture just says you need to be right with God having received his forgiveness. And even if you prayed just moments ago to receive his forgiveness and salvation, you're welcome to the table. This is a celebration of what Christ has done as we soberly remember and honor him for he is the one through his sacrifice that gives us life. Our team is gonna serve and pass, take a piece of the bread, take a cup. And again, if you're not sure where you are with Jesus, feel free to let it go on by. Nobody's going to look at you weird and we don't want to ask you to do something that's not consistent with where you're at. But as the plate goes by and if you're prepared to take a piece of the bread, take the cup, hold it for a moment. Listen to God speak to you as the team leads the song and I'll be back in just a moment and we'll receive it together. All right? So go ahead and sit quietly with it as the team passes. Spain. 
is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he was celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples. And as they sat there, he took the bread and he broke it. And he wrote himself into the story. They were there to remember God's rescue from slavery in Egypt, God's deliverance. And here was Jesus writing himself into that story and revealing what was about to happen. He said, this is my body broken for you. Then he invited them to take it and eat it, that they might be healed. For by his brokenness, we can be healed and made whole. Take it and eat it and give thanks together. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, blood of a new covenant poured out for you. Humans, we have broken covenant with God, a way to relate with God, the promises that were made that we were to uphold. We fell far short, but Jesus took that brokenness. Jesus took that sin upon himself in sacrifice that we might be made clean and pure and drawn into a new way to relate with God through his love and grace. And so the invitation of the cup is the invitation to drink deeply of the life that he alone can give. Take it, drink it, and give thanks. Stand with me, let's pray together. Jesus, unbelievable. Unbelievable that you would do what you did. And yet, here we are in witness to your life, death, resurrection, and enthronement at the right hand of God. We worship you, we honor you, and thank you for you have drawn us into this life, into life now and life forever. Fill us with your life as we walk with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. So what must we do? Repent and be baptized. If you're here today and you know that your life is characterized as rebellion against God, but you don't want to stay there, come talk with us. Our prayer team is going to be right up here. They'd love to pray with you that you might be made new for the forgiveness of sins and the new life through his spirit. You can have confidence in that today there's any other reason you'd like to pray for us, but you'd like us to pray for you, come up here, join us in this. And as you have been marked by his grace and his love, walk in his presence, for we are witnesses of these things. This Jesus who is crucified by wicked men is now both Lord and Christ. Walk with him as you go. Take a little bit to stop and reflect on what God might be saying to you and how you'll respond to him today. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we are here to serve you. Find us at centerpointnh.org and join us on the journey of living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus.